Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, policy analyst Aaron Woodrick says Canadians are becoming angry over basic government mismanagement and incompetence. Anyone taking a plane this summer knows what he means. House of Commons Public Accounts Committee Chair John Williamson tells us about the crocodile tears some politicians are crying over their high gas prices. Borowell CEO and Andrew Graham has a new program for renters who want their rent payments to help improve their credit scores. And Vancouver Councillor Colleen Hardwick insists taxpayers have a say, a vote, on their support or not for a 2030 Olympics. So, let's get started. A real pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to our first guest on the program today. He has been a good friend of our show since his many years as the National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He's moved on to the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, where we've spoken to him before. As we say, welcome back to Aaron Woodrick, the Director of Domestic Policy Programs for Macdonald-Laurier. Aaron, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, sir. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, it's good to have you with us. And you're uh, you're taking your day, doing a bit of a deep dive in the National Post the other day, and tapping into the anger that is so evident across this country this summer. This is not just about freedom convoys or whatever handy little uh, label you'd like to put on all of this. There's a lot more going on, and as you point out in the National Post the other day, much of it, Aaron, has to do with who's in charge anyway, and what terrible job many of those people in charge are doing. Flesh it out for us this morning. Yeah, look, Sterling, I really wrote this because I I was trying to put my finger on a a very common sentiment right now. You see it in the news in various ways, whether it's uh, frustration with people trying to get passports, whether it's delays at airports. We've heard news about uh, immigration application backlogs, you name it. It just does not seem like government right now um, at various levels, municipal, provincial, federal, are doing a very good job. Um, And that, I think, is translated into a lot of frustration amongst Canadian public. I don't think it's an ideological thing. I don't think it's a left or a right thing. I think a lot of people just sort of expect things to work better than they are right now. And you're starting to see that frustration boil over um, in the opinion polls. You know, anyone who is running a government right now, a lot of people take a dim view. And I wrote this piece also to just sort of caution that, um, you know, there are some governments that want to do even more. And it's a pretty, I think, uncontroversial point that if the the things on your to-do list right now are not getting done, it, it might not be a good idea to add too many more things to that list until you've got straight what you what you're already obligated to take and care of. And you're talking about things like rolling back the uh, nitrogen quantity quality of uh, fertilizer and all sorts of other to-do list things. And by the way, your point has been, well, shall we say, dramatically underscored by an editorial in the Post Media Group this morning, Aaron. Right across the country, the editorial says, Canada's airport mess an international embarrassment. And they go on and on to talk about flight analytics. Let me just quote very briefly. Flight analytics reveals this summer, Toronto's Pearson International Airport is the worst airport in the world for delays and fourth worst airport in the world for cancellations. This means there are airports, Aaron, in third world countries, theocracies and unstable regimes that are able to better manage their air travel than Canada has been doing How humiliating, say the editors at the Post Media Group today. 
Yeah, it's it's really embarrassing, although maybe the folks in Toronto were happy that they're number one at something. That's mm. probably not the list they wanted to be at the top of. But it also sort of, uh, I think, explodes the myth, Sterling. You know, some people have said, well, you know, it's uh, it's not particular to Canada. There's problems all over the world. That's true. Um, but uh, why are we the worst of the bunch? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the problem is, Sterling, that there are people who, um, they're, they're more concerned. They've got so many ideas about what government should be fixing that rather than focus on a few things and doing those things very well, they want to do everything. And we see the result of that now in, in, in things in the airports and the passports are just two examples. I mean, there are many, many things where people uh, just feel government is not doing a good job. And the thing I say to folks who want government to do more things, because I recognize, you know, different people have different views about how much government should do, is that even if you want government to do more, you should be concerned about this because you, people will lose trust in the institution of government altogether if you don't do um, the basics properly. And you consider the current government partnership configuration between the Liberals and the NDP, uh, for whom there is no such thing as a government too big. Let me again quote from your article here, quote, our military is starved of both jets and ships. Many rural indigenous reserves remain without potable water. Money laundering is rampant. And the Trudeau government had a well developed, rather, a well-earned reputation for being really good at announcing things but not so good at delivering them. This was a comment about the situation pre-COVID. And of course, it's gone downhill since then. It absolutely has. And another recent example that I think brought this to the fore was the Rogers uh, network outage, Sterling. So here you have a situation where, I mean, this was a this was a huge gap in Canada's critical infrastructure. I yep. mean, the, the internet and wireless networks are not a, a fun thing anymore. Our lives all depend on them. I mean, people couldn't, 911 lines were down, people couldn't access to their bank accounts. I mean, this was a big problem. But when you go back and look, what is the federal government focusing on when it comes to telecoms and the internet? Well, it's about regulating content. It's about trying to uh, micromanage what happens on the internet in terms of what Canadians see. So they got it wrong. I mean, this is something government has a role in regulating the internet, but shouldn't it be about securing the infrastructure and making sure Canadians have access to it rather than worrying so much about content? So that's just another example of why the, where the government's got its priorities wrong. Well, and you know, and, and, and tapping into the anger has never been a, a, a something that politicians have shied away from. It's it's one of their main main accesses to the public. But, you know, there's right now a guy called Pierre Poilievre who's out there basically banging on the doors and raising a ruckus and saying things, quote, like a government that does a few things right rather than a lot of things poorly is what most Canadians are after these days. And he's right. There's nothing wrong with with identifying uh, what the anger is all about and proposing a solution, particularly if you're in the opposition, because as I understand the role, that's exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and look, I, I, again, I, as I said in the piece, I, I don't think Canadians, for the most part, are ideological, but surely we can agree that even before we start taking on more, um, you have to get the basics right first. So I, I know, you know, Mr. Polyev's uh, track record suggests he is genuinely a believer in small government himself, but I think the comment is, is quite clever in that he's also appealing to people that might be pretty ambivalent about whether they want big or small government, but what they do know is whatever government's doing, they want it to do it well. Well, isn't that the first function, the first primary function of any government anywhere is to run the show efficiently? Sure, you can change the world to the best of your ability, but you're, you've been hired primarily to do a good job of running the country. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it also trickles down, Sterling, when you look at provincial and municipal governments, a lot of municipal governments are seized with sort of um, broader sort of equity issues, um, you know, fighting social ills. These aren't unimportant things, right. but really the, the basic function of municipal governments is if you can't pick up the garbage, if you can't clear the snow, if you can't keep the parks clean, these sorts of things, if you neglect those things, and then people see you spending time at city council debating these sort of abstract issues, I think people start to get frustrated. And so I think this is a this is a good opportunity for governments everywhere to sort of step back, say, look, let's get the basics right, and then we can talk about what we want to do uh, once we figure that out. Interesting, because there's this whole 2030 Olympic thing going on here in Vancouver. Many of the people see that as a distraction, a shiny object to sort of have our attention uh, refocused on things that, well, don't matter a great deal, but are of importance to politicians. Yeah, and I think uh, things like Olympics, which are always money losers and are largely the, the main reason for having those in Sterling is prestige. Sure. There's not really any economic benefit. Ask the folks in Calgary who had a referendum on this issue and, and voted heavily against it. Yep. Um, I, you know, I heard your, your, your clip earlier, and I absolutely think people in Vancouver should have a say in this because it is going to be, they're going to be, they're, uh, you know, the bill is going to be stuck with them in large part. So if, if they're going to, if the city is going to take this on, you know, they, they definitely need to have their voices heard first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Aaron, always a pleasure to have you on board. We do appreciate your observations. Uh, you certainly have tapped into a very raw nerve amongst many millions of readers this week with that excellent column in the National Post. Thanks for joining us again. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, sir. Uh, a pleasure to welcome our next guest. Here's a quote from an article he wrote the other day in the Financial Post. Quote, for that noisy and insistent band of politicians, activists, and interest groups pushing Canada relentlessly towards a costly net zero emissions future, the moment of success has arrived. Mission accomplished and sooner than expected. Gas is through the roof. Pump prices are so high, many people are making significant sacrifices just to fill up their tank. Families are canceling summer driving vacations. Hooray! The title of the article, High Gas Prices Have Been the Plan All Along. The author of the piece, the Member of Parliament for New Brunswick Southwest, and the Chairman of the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to John Williamson, joining us this morning from St. Andrews, New Brunswick. John, it's been at least a century since we had a decent conversation on the radio. Good morning. Welcome back. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, I would have plugged it maybe a decade, but it, it, in some ways it feels uh, it, it feels as long with the with the 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 economy you're going through now, the high gas prices, and the economic policy that's coming out of Victoria as well as Ottawa. Indeed, well, the subheader of your piece about high gas prices have been the plan all along really was the giveaway. Here it is. The green objective has always been to price gas out of the reach of Canadian consumers. Mission accomplished. But you also go on to talk about, as this energy affordability crisis grows, and I'm quoting again, the same folks who have been working tirelessly to drive gas prices higher are now shedding crocodile tears over the fact that they're so high. We've had Legault in Quebec sending rebate checks back to Quebecers. Here in British Columbia, John, through their ICBC front, the B.C. government is returning $110 checks to motorists who've been inconvenienced by their uh, delightful high gas prices. Crocodile tears, indeed. It's going on all across the country, too, isn't it? Well, it is. And the most outrageous example, the most hypocritical, the most kind of 
over the top was the Green Party leaders uh, in several provinces, including British Columbia, as well as my home province of New Brunswick, writing to Justin Trudeau earlier this month asking for both higher taxes on oil companies, but to fund, you guessed it, gasoline and energy rebates to, to consumers. Right. And this is just this is just astounding because the Greens have been constant cheerleaders for Justin Trudeau's carbon tax, energy policies to keep hydrocarbons in the ground and to, and to somehow uh, convert a modern economy to windmills and solar panels, right. which as we're seeing in Europe, just isn't possible. Uh, there's a real there's a real there's a real gap here between the desire and the technology. And yet the Greens have been calling on even as far as Justin Trudeau has gone, which has been too far, in my opinion. Look at the pump prices. The Greens are saying do even more. Yet now, as their policies are working, as they're getting exactly what they wanted, bone crushing, gas prices, energy prices, they're saying people need a rebate. They're right on that. They're just the wrong people to listen to. Well, of course, and they have been, and and very carefully, very, very carefully, planning to do what exactly has happened. What's happened, though, John, is uh, with the pandemic and the bizarre events that have accompanied it with the lockdowns and the just the twist to the economy that it provided, all of a sudden, here we are with gas prices where they've always wanted them to be much faster than was expected. And so we have these crocodile tear check-issuing yeah. people um, pretending to be really sympathetic to you and your, your pain. We feel your pain. Well, wait a second. You're the guys that intend to cause more. That's right. And, and the solution here, obviously, is to repeal the carbon tax, get back to energy that is affordable, that working families, that pensioners can, can afford, uh, not to subsidize high energy sources uh, and to make reliable, affordable energy more expensive. And, you know, you left out one important variable as well. It's one the, the prime minister likes to point to whenever the question of high gas prices raised in the House of Commons, and that's the, the war in Ukraine, which has obviously contributed to, to higher, uh, higher gas and energy prices. But the example I shoot back in the House of Commons, and I, I know it's the same thing in British Columbia and in Washington State, here in, here in New Brunswick, I crossed 20 minutes into the state of Maine, and suddenly a liter of gasoline is 50 cents less per liter after the exchange rate, yeah. the difference between these, 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 these Canadian U.S. prices has everything to do with taxes and bad energy prices or policies, pardon me, that are coming out of Ottawa and, and Victoria. So we can't blame the Russians for that. Yes, we can, we can point to higher than, than the normal prices, but that, that difference between Canada and the U.S. is not the fault of Vladimir Putin or the war in Ukraine. It is a result of deliberate policies promoted by the Greens, enacted by the NDP and, and the Liberals to drive up energy prices and to make life more difficult, more expensive for ordinary Canadians. And it has to stop. And, and, and yes, and I, I suppose, though, the point of your article, as I took it, was they've been caught uh, basically, where yeah. they where, the, where they've been caught at the finish line probably a few years before they intended to get there. So yeah. now it's awkward. Well, and they should be. They should be cheering. This is what they for, for for the last decade. This is what uh, this is what they wanted, and um, these politicians who have promoted these policies should be taking a bow. Mission accomplished, as I said, uh, tongue in cheek. Uh, but for them, this is this is this is the outcome that they wanted. Uh, 
I think you're right. I think this this all happened a little sooner than they expected because of world events, yeah. COVID, the war in Ukraine. Uh, so they're still in office. It's now happening. And so they're worried that voters are going to say, wait a second. This is not what we signed up for. These, these green politicians said the transition from hydrocarbons to renewables would be easy. It has not been easy. In fact, the, the evidence is there that you cannot run a modern economy on windmills and solar, solar power. The technology for batteries is not there. Perhaps it will be in, in, in my lifetime or, or my daughter's lifetime. But right now, it's a fool's errand to be cutting hydrocarbons, oil and gas off at its knees um, until there's a reliable alternative. And sadly, there is not. I wish there was, but, but we have to be realistic because we're talking now livelihoods, and people's uh, people's living standards and the policies coming out of Victoria and Ottawa are proving to be hurtful and really damaging to individuals as well as the economy. Just for comparison purposes, this morning, Mr. Williamson, a, a liter of gas in Metro Vancouver will set you back one ninety four point nine, and people are happy about that. We hit two thirty, two thirty three a month or so ago, yes. but at a buck ninety five for round numbers this morning in Vancouver. Yeah. What's a liter of gas in St. Andrews, NB, this morning, John? It's, it's a little less because our our carbon tax our, our energy taxes aren't aren't as high so it's about uh, a buck eighty two okay. so a little little less um, I mean look in in Vancouver there are six different government taxes on pump prices yep. they account for thirty eight percent of the of the uh, of the of, of, a, of a liter of gasoline and again that's all government driving that so you know I, I I know what you mean now that prices have fallen below two dollars people feel a little better because you know things are things are things are cooling a little bit but we need to get pump prices down considerably so people do get on with their lives again it is regrettable that that people aren't able to travel that that these that these energy prices are impacting uh, people's people's livelihoods and I think this winter as, as we roll into more energy use with home heating uh you're going to start hearing a term called energy poverty more and more it's a phenomenon that that is that is felt throughout uh europe in particular the continent as well as in england and i think we're going to start seeing that here because trudeau is just a couple years behind where europe already is which is which is an unreliable energy system and sky high prices that uh that are going to cause real misery to modest income earners, uh, people on a, on, a, on a fixed income, and of course, pensioners. Right. And of course, if you're seeing energy poverty here this coming winter in Canada, imagine how severe and dramatic it would be uh, comparatively in Europe during the same exactly. time. John, yeah, I'm, well, they're, I'm they're, sorry. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're in big trouble in Europe because they're all, they made a fool's errand, the Germans, by, by, being, by, by, by hitching their dependency to, 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 to Russia. Um, hopefully, Canada will step in and help by providing more natural gas to Europe. We can do it. We just have to build the uh, the pipeline capacity to do so. All right, John, great to have you back on the show. It has been forever. And uh, let's make sure that it's not such a long time before we talk again. Tell you what, I'll keep writing. And when you see a piece you like, give me a call and I'll be happy to come on and talk about it. All right. Count on it. Thanks, John, very much. Thank you.
A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. This is an interesting concept. This company has launched a new program to help Canadian renters build credit history using their monthly rent payments in a way similar to homeowners building credit with their monthly mortgage payments. The program is called Rent Advantage, and it's offered by BorrowWell. A pleasure to welcome the CEO and co-founder of BorrowWell, Andrew Graham, to our show. Mr. Graham joining us today from Toronto. Andrew, good morning, and thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, when did this idea uh, come to mind, and how long has it taken you to, to bring it to a working posture? Well, we've been working on this for quite a while. The credit system is complicated, and we really want to help renters be able to report all the good payments they're making and get credit for that with the credit bureau so they can get access to better loans and mortgages in the future. It has been an absolute uh, source of frustration for renters for decades, frankly, Andrew, that the fact that they're, especially those who are conscientious and who go out of their way to make sure that rent is uh, on uh, on time on the first of every month, etc., etc., for which they receive absolutely no recognition or, more importantly, credit. So why has it been that renters have been so completely ignored by the credit reporting system, Andrew? Well, it, it has been complicated because if you think uh, of you know how the rental market works, there are so many different landlords. There's thousands and thousands of different landlords across Canada. Some have one unit, some may have a, a lot more than that. And you know, getting that data about uh, renters paying on time has been complicated in the past. And we're really excited to have sort of cut through that. We're going to allow renters to pay uh, excuse me, to report their rent payments directly to Equifax, which is you know the largest credit bureau in Canada. Sure. Okay. So how does it work? Give us the nuts and bolts here, Andrew. Suppose I'm a renter now, and I'd like to take advantage of the fact that I pay my rent on time and get some credit for it. How do I sign up and where? Yeah, you go to our website, which is borrowwell.com. That's um, like borrowandwell.com. Uh, and you, you sign up uh, with us. You can get your credit score totally for free. And then the way Rent Advantage works is you connect your bank account electronically to uh, to us, and you identify which are rent payments. And then every month, those rent payments get reported to Equifax, and then that goes into your credit uh, your credit history and, uh, and your credit score. Interesting. So now, uh, because there's no landlord involved in in terms of being that reporting agency, it's simply a mechanism through your own bank account, right? Exactly right. So, you know, your bank account or your credit card or however you pay rent, it's those transactions that are the proof that you've made your rent payments on time. And that's what uh, that's what ultimately gets reported. So you don't need your landlord involved. Okay, so now, of course, the downside of that is if you miss a a rental payment, the algorithm will recognize that gap in your bank account and also report it. Correct. That, that's exactly right. This is about uh, about you know showing that behavior, and I'm sure for you know the vast majority of renters make all their payments on time, and we want to help them uh, help them show that. So, what do what role, if any, do landlords play in all of this, Andrew? Well, with our service, landlords don't play any role. We're allowing renters to report directly to Equifax, and uh, we think that's really important because, as I said, there are many small landlords that may not have interest or may not have time. Uh, you know, to to work with their their renters in the, with this sort of program, and we really wanted to give renters the power. Renters face a lot of challenges, as you know, Sterling. We wanted to give renters the power to do this directly. 
All right, a lot, a lot of enthusiasm from renters. I can hear it already coming right across the country this morning, Andrew. How difficult was it to get Equifax, the credit reporting agency, on side with this concept? Well, I can tell you Equifax is a great partner, and they're, they're always looking for new sources of, 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 um, of data and new ways that they can be helpful as well to Canadians. And we worked hard together on this to, to make it work, and, and um, they've, they've, uh, they've been enthusiastic partners of ours here and uh, really looking forward to, uh, to rolling this out along with us. So as, as if a person decides to join this, uh, this idea at Borrowwell, the Rent Advantage Program, there is a fee, but it's, it's what, five bucks a month? That's right, five bucks a month, which we think, uh, compared to uh, you know your typical rent payments, pretty uh, pretty pretty affordable. That's only a third of a Netflix account for crying out loud, Andrew. You're not doing a lot of damage yeah. with five bucks a month, but nonetheless, it, it's a recognition of the fact that there's some format, some structure to all of this. What's the response been so far? Well, I can tell you, the response has been overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive. There, you know, it's just so hard um, for 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 many people uh, who rent to, uh, you know, get a leg up and to get into the housing market, sure. get the same access to loans. And you know what's really interesting? If you look at credit scores in Vancouver, renters uh, typically have, a cre- have credit scores that are like 100 points lower than people who have mortgages. And, and that's just uh, that just shows how big of a problem this is. So we've had a lot of uh, just a ton of interest across the country in this. Does it matter which bank you happen to deal with? Uh, no, it doesn't. We, we can connect to virtually uh, virtually all banks and credit unions and other institutions across the country. So one uh, becomes a participant in the Rent Advantage Program, Andrew, simply by going to your website, borrowwell.com, and, and uh, follow the, the prompts, right? That, that's exactly right. We've, we've had such interest that we... we um, we're, we've onboard. We've started onboarding people, and we've got a wait list uh, for everyone else. We're going to get everyone involved in this program as, just as quickly as we can. It's uh, it's been so exciting to see all the uh, all the interest, as I said, across the country. Well, you know, and I'm, I'm you've certainly tapped in, Andrew, to a very widely held frustration in terms of renters, no matter what corner of Canada they happen to occupy. The fact that they can't connect diligent timely rent payments with some kind of reflection on their credit score has been enormously frustrating for a lot of renters for a long time. So well done in terms of at least offering a solution for a change. Well, thank you very much. We just want uh, renters and, and you know people making payments on time to get the credit they deserve for that. I think it's really only fair. All right. And remind us again of the website, if you would, please, Mr. CEO. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's Borrowell, B-O-R-R-O-W-E-L-L. Borrow well, one word, borrowwell.com. Great, great plan, Andrew. Thanks for getting up a little early on a Saturday to remind us here on the West Coast that we can uh, find our way to some credit, uh, well, solutions here if we're, we too happen to be renters. Great idea. Thanks for it. Thanks for having me. At 6 o'clock, or just a little after this morning, we tabled the buzz line question. We've had a phenomenal response to it. The question, very simply, are you for or against a 2030 Olympics in Vancouver? We played back a bunch of your responses after the 8 o'clock news. Here's another one, just to refresh your memory. I'm calling to say I would not be in favor of the 2030 Olympics at all. I think that there are many other things that are far more important for the citizens of this province 
to be uh, dealt with before we even contemplate spending that kind of money on something uh, of that nature. We do thank you, all of you, who took uh, time out of your busy Saturday morning to take a moment and share your thoughts about a 2030 Olympic bid in Vancouver. Uh, Colleen Hardwick joins us, Councillor Hardwick, of course, from Vancouver City Hall and Team Merrillty candidate for 22. Uh, Councillor, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Carly, Beautiful we, day. Well, yes, it is a lovely day, and uh, we're going to, of course, the big party at uh, English Bay tonight. I used to be, I was a judge a few years ago for the uh, Celebration of Light. It's quite, quite an evening's entertainment. It's going to be a lot of fun. Fantastic. So let's talk about the Olympics, Colleen, because you are uh, one at City Hall, one of a, a small group, it, it appears, that favors citizen input into this. We have an election coming up in October. Uh, why not add one line to an existing ballot that wouldn't cost much printer's ink to include, saying basically what we asked uh, our listeners this morning. Are you for or against a 2030 Olympics in Vancouver? So why the resistance to citizen taxpayer input, Colleen? Well, the excuse that's being used is that these are Indigenous-led games, and that means somehow that we don't have a democratic responsibility to our citizens. Uh, I don't see the two as being mutually exclusive. Well, and uh, as we found out in a letter that you would probably have read out loud on Wednesday at the at the city council meeting, uh, the indigenous groups who are leading this bid uh, were getting uh, trying to get Vancouver City Council on side to move forward after city staff reported that they couldn't uh, authorize city council to endorse this bid because there were too many unanswered questions, too many just question marks to be able to be confident about, about an endorsement. I don't expect that's changed in the last three days. No, there, there were uh, risk considerations that were drawn out in the report. Uh, one was the very tight timeline to evaluate and negotiate between now and December. Two was the commitment of staff and resources managing the FIFA 26 World Cup, and I think the Invictus Games is also uh, on the line. Right. Uh, the game's governance is unclear. The city has a large stake with little control over the process. The costs and financial risks are just uh, very significant. And the degree of, of public support, well, we don't know because we're unprepared to put it uh, on the ballot before the electorate. I mean, forget about things like displacement of housing of insecure residents and disruption to local businesses. To me, the fact that we're we're not prepared to go out to the electorate is shocking. So the International Olympic Committee, rather, and the Canadian Olympic Committee are, are both actually uh, seem to be on side with the notion of no taxpayer input. This goes back to a referendum they had in Calgary a few years ago, Colleen, when Calgarians were asked to consider re-hosting a Winter Olympics of the future, having successfully done a great job back in 88. So with that experience under their belt, the citizens of Calgary said, no thanks. And that was an embarrassment for the Canadian Olympic Committee and ultimately the IOC. Is that why they appear to be resistant to taxpayer input this time? Well, it could be um, one of the considerations. But the bottom line is, what are you afraid of? If you're so confident that this is the right thing to do to uh, reboot the Olympics in 2030, why are you unprepared to go to the people? At the heart of it, that is the question. 
So now there is a, a municipal election afoot. There will be a vote in October. You're a player on the field. Is this whole Olympic business, multi-billion dollar Olympic business, expected to be a, a, a contentious issue in terms of voter decisions? Well, I would hope so, because it's illustrative of a larger problem that we have at City Hall, and that is the fact that, that we're not listening. The people that are elected are responsible to represent their constituents, but they're not listening. They're saying that we know better than you, um, and you know, to me, that is something that has been across the board during this term on council and needs to be changed. And what's going on with the Olympics is just illustrative of that larger problem. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the other four levels of government, too, because, of course, the province has a role to play in all of this. Ultimately, the province could be the, in, uh, the backstop, if you will, financially of this whole thing as they were in 2010. So there's not a lot of enthusiasm out of Victoria that I'm able to measure these days. What do you see? You have a better angle on the provincial capital than I do. Well, we did receive a letter from the minister, and it stated that the province of BC, um, that this was to the COC, should not assume the province will be responsible for indemnifications. So neither the federal, the federal government, of course, as a matter of policy, the federal government does not indemnify international sporting events. Right. So the the city of Vancouver and other parties are out on a limb. So again, I need to return to this notion of reconciliation because the, the argument is if we have a vote of uh, citizens as to whether or not they agree with uh, their resources and ours being directed to this, that is somehow or another an affront, uh, an, an impediment to reconciliation. Uh, I don't understand the argument. Frankly, I don't see any merit to it at all. Well, we all embrace the notion that we are a city of reconciliation. and uh, But I do not see where that supersedes our responsibility to our citizens, to our electorate. We are conducting elections in October, the last time I checked, mm -hmm. to elect representatives for the roughly 660,000 pe people that reside within the boundaries from the University Endowment Lands to Boundary Road. That is our job. And that doesn't, uh, and reconciliation doesn't preclude that responsibility to our citizens. Are you surprised by the reaction of CKNW listeners this morning when given a chance to uh, to ring in on the notion? It was a pretty resounding no thanks. Well, um, I have taken the position throughout that I'm not saying that I'm pro or con Olympics. What I am um, advocating for is to let the people decide and let the people have a voice in this. Um, you know that I have concerns that we have not seen the books. The books from the 2010 Olympics are embargoed at the city archives, right. and we won't be able to see those until 2025. And any other, <laughs> any other decision that you would have to make without the benefit of knowing how you did previously, to me, that's bad decision-making. So that's, but ultimately, it should be up to the people. When you're talking about a $4 billion price tag, mm -hmm. to not consult with the people, I think, is irresponsible. Yeah, this, how convenient that the bid remains sealed until 2025, long after any decision will be taken on this 2030 uh, bid proposal. Uh, who was responsible for sealing that deal as tightly down as it is? 
Um, the second to last city manager. Ah, interesting. And of course, Vanock, whose uh, whose uh, books and numbers are the source of said seal for, until twenty twenty five. But it is uh, you're right. If, if you're going to make a, a multi billion dollar decision and you don't even have the last round set of numbers as some kind of template or at least metric that you can measure against it makes the decision making process even more difficult doesn't it well obviously it does um i just i can't imagine a world where where you wouldn't want to see the historical data on which to base a decision to me, it's irresponsible. Colleen, and I want to change gears in the last uh, moment or two that we have. Yesterday, City Council approved the Vancouver Plan, the 30-year long-horizon view for the city and its development future. Where did you come down on that? Well, I voted against it, and I'll tell you why. I advocated for a reboot of the city plan process. I started doing that back in 2005, and I ran on it in 2018. And when the motion came forward to this council, I seconded it enthusiastically. But my expectation was that we were going to continue a process that Vancouver is known for of community or neighborhood-based planning. Because we have, you know, the, the Mount Pleasant plan, the Kitsilano plan, sure. the Dunbar plan mm-hmm. all across the city. And so the objective was to knit together that tapestry of, of neighborhood plans to take it to the next level, asking ourselves, how can we um, anticipate population growth, densification across the city and the various different things that, that, that are at, at task, like mobility, community amenities, commercial space, green space, all of those things need to be looked at at a hyper-local level. But that hasn't happened here. We've taken this top-down, deterministic, almost autocratic approach to, you know, we we at City Hall are going to tell you, according to our um, our priorities, how the city is going to be shaped. Mm. And to me, it's like taking a steamroller across uh, and just completely negating all of the the uh, plans that have have uh, come in the past, and so again, when the city plan process was conducted over the nineties, over a hundred thousand Vancouverites participated pre-internet. This has been done during a pandemic, mostly online, right. consulting the industry without consulting the people, and it's another illustration of the democratic deficit in this city today. Interesting. Well, aren't we just heating up the uh, the old cauldron here for a good corker of a round come October in municipal <laughs> politics, which is always fun on a bad day in Vancouver. Colleen Hardwick, thanks so much for this. We do appreciate uh, your joining us again this morning. Thanks so much. Have a great one. You too. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.